Section forty five of Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section forty five of Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book the Third, Chapter Twelve meaning mischief up came the sun steaming all over london and in its glorious impartiality even condescending to make prismatic sparkles in the whiskers of mr alfred lamley as he sat at breakfast in need of some brightening from without was mr alfred lamley for he had the air of being dull enough within and looked grievously discontented mrs alfred lamley faced her lord the happy pair of swindlers with the comfortable tie between them that each had swindled the other sat moodily observant of the tablecloth things looked so gloomy in the breakfast-room albeit on the sunny side of sackville street that any of the family tradespeople glancing through the blinds might have taken the hint to send in his account and press for it but this indeed most of the family tradespeople had already done without the hint it seems to me said mrs lamley that you have had no money at all ever since we have been married what seems to you said mr lamley to have been the case may possibly have been the case it doesn't matter was it the speciality of mr and mrs lamley or does it ever obtain with other loving couples in these matrimonial dialogues they never addressed each other but always some invisible presence that appeared to take a station about midway between them perhaps the skeleton in the cupboard comes out to be talked to in such domestic occasions i have never seen any money in the house said mrs lamley to the skeleton except my own annuity that i swear you needn't take the trouble of swearing said mr lamley to the skeleton once more it doesn't matter you never turned your annuity to so good an account good an account in what way asked mrs lamley in the way of getting credit and living well said mr lamley perhaps the skeleton laughed scornfully on being entrusted with this question and this answer certainly mrs lamley did and mr lamley did and what is to happen next asked mrs lamley of the skeleton smash is to happen next said mr lamley to the same authority after this mrs lamley looked disdainfully at the skeleton but without carrying the look on to mr lamley and drooped her eyes after that mr lamley did exactly the same thing and drooped his eyes a servant then entering with toast the skeleton retired into the closet and shut itself up sophronia said mr lamley when the servant had withdrawn and then very much louder sophronia well attend to me if you please he eyed her sternly until she did attend and then went on i want to take counsel with you come come no more trifling you know our league and covenant we are to work together for our joint interest and you are as knowing a hand as i am we shouldn't be together if you were not what's to be done we are hemmed into a corner what shall we do have you no scheme on foot that will bring in anything 
Mr. Lamley plunged into his whiskers for reflection and came out hopeless. No, as adventurers we are obliged to play rash games for chances of high winnings, and there has been a run of luck against us. She was resuming. Have you nothing? When he stopped her. We, Sophronia, we, we, we. Have we nothing to sell? Deuce a bit. I have given a Jew a bill of sale on this furniture, and he could take it to-morrow, to-day, now. He would have taken it before now, I believe, but for Fledgeby. What has Fledgeby to do with him? Knew him. Cautioned me against him before I got into his claws. Couldn't persuade him then in behalf of somebody else. Do you mean that Fledgeby has at all softened him towards you? Us, Sophronia, us, us, us. Towards us? I mean that the Jew has not yet done what he might have done, and that Fledgeby takes the credit of having got him to hold his hand. Do you believe Fledgeby? Sophronia, I never believe anybody. I never have, my dear, since I believed you. But it looks like it. Having given her this back-handed reminder of her mutinous observations to the skeleton, Mr. Lamley rose from the table perhaps the better to conceal a smile and a white dint or two about his nose, and took a turn on the carpet and came to the hearth-rug. If we could have packed the brute off with Georgiana, but, however, that spilled milk. As Lamley, standing, gathered up the skirts of his dressing-gown with his back to the fire, said this, looking down at his wife, she turned pale and looked down at the ground, with a sense of disloyalty upon her, and perhaps with a sense of personal danger, for she was afraid of him, even afraid of his hand and afraid of his foot, though he had never done her violence. She hastened to put herself right in his eyes. If we could borrow money, Alfred, beg money, borrow money, or steal money, it would be all one to us, Sophronia, her husband struck in. Then we could weather this? No doubt. To offer another original and undeniable remark, Sophronia, two and two make four. But seeing that she was turning something in her mind, he gathered up the skirts of his dressing-gown again, and tucking them under one arm and collecting his ample whiskers in his other hand, kept his eye upon her silently. It is natural, Alfred, she said, looking up with some timidity into his face, to think in such an emergency of the richest people we know, and the simplest. Just so, Sophronia. The Boffins. Just so, Sophronia. Is there nothing to be done with them? What is there to be done with them, Sophronia? She cast about in her thoughts again, and he kept his eye upon her as before. Of course I have repeatedly thought of the Boffins, Sophronia, he resumed after a fruitless silence but I have seen my way to nothing. They are well guarded. That infernal secretary stands between them and people of merit. He could be got rid of, said she, brightening a little, after more casting about. Take time, Sophronia, observed her watchful husband in a patronizing manner. If working him out of the way could be presented in the light of a service to Mr. Boffin, take time, Sophronia, we have remarked lately, Alfred, that the old man is turning very suspicious and distrustful. Miserly, too, my dear, which is far the most unpromising for us. Nevertheless, take time, Sophronia, take time. She took time and then said, Suppose we should address ourselves to that tendency of him, of which we have 
made ourselves quite sure. Suppose my conscience— And we know what a conscience it is, my soul, yes? Suppose my conscience should not allow me to keep to myself any longer what that upstart girl told me of the secretary's having made a declaration to her. Suppose my conscience should oblige me to repeat it to Mr. Boffin. I rather like that, said Lamley. Suppose I so repeated it to Mr. Boffin as to insinuate that my sensitive delicacy and honor— Very good word, Sophronia. As to insinuate that our sensitive delicacy and honor, she resumed with a bitter stress upon the phrase, would not allow us to be silent parties to so mercenary and designing a speculation on the secretary's part, and so gross a breach of faith towards his confiding employer. Suppose I had imparted my virtuous uneasiness to my excellent husband, and he had said in his integrity, Sophronia, you must immediately disclose this to Mr. Boffin. Once more, Sophronia, observed Lamley, changing the leg on which he stood, I rather like that. You remark that he is well guarded, she pursued. I think so, too. But if this should lead to his discharging his secretary, there would be a weak place made. Go on expounding, Sophronia. I begin to like this very much. Having in our unimpeachable rectitude done him the service of opening his eyes to the treachery of the person he trusted, we shall have established a claim upon him and a confidence with him. Whether it can be made much of or little of, we must wait, because we can't help it to see. Probably we shall make the most of it that is to be made. Probably, said Lamley. Do you think it impossible, she asked, in the same cold, plodding way, that you might replace the secretary? Not impossible, Sophronia. It might be brought about. At any rate, it might be skillfully led up to. She nodded her understanding of the hint as she looked at the fire. Mr. Lamley, she said musingly, not without a slight ironical touch, Mr. Lamley would be so delighted to do anything in his power. Mr. Lamley himself a man of business as well as a capitalist. Mr. Lamley accustomed to be entrusted with the most delicate affairs. Mr. Lamley, who has managed my own little fortune so admirably, but who, to be sure, began to make his reputation with the advantage of being a man of property, above temptation and beyond suspicion. Mr. Lamley smiled and even patted her on the head. In his sinister relish of the scheme, as he stood above her, making it the subject of his cogitations, he seemed to have twice as much nose on his face as he had ever had in his life. He stood pondering, and she sat looking at the dusty fire without moving for some time. But the moment he began to speak again, she looked up with a wince and attended to him, as if that double dealing of hers had been in her mind, and the fear were revived in her of his hand or his foot. It appears to me, Sophronia, that you have omitted one branch of the subject. Perhaps not, for women understand women. We might oust the girl herself? Mrs. Lamley shook her head. She has an immensely strong hold upon them both, Alfred, not to be compared with that of a paid secretary. But the dear child, said Lanley, with a crooked smile, ought to have been open with her benefactor and benefactress. The darling love ought to have reposed unbounded confidence in her benefactor and benefactress. Sophronia shook her head again. Well, women understand women, said her husband, rather disappointed. I don't press it. It might be the making of our fortune to make a clean sweep of them both, with me to manage the property and my wife to manage the people. Whew. 
Again, shaking her head, she returned. They will never quarrel with the girl. They will never punish the girl. We must accept the girl, rely upon it. Well, cried Lamley, shrugging his shoulders, so be it. Only always remember that we don't want her. Now the sole remaining question is, said Mrs. Lamley, when shall I begin? You cannot begin too soon, Sophronia, as I have told you. The condition of our affairs is desperate and may be blown upon at any moment. I must secure Mr. Boffin alone, Alfred. If his wife was present, she would throw oil upon the waters. I know I shall fail to move him to an angry outburst if his wife was there. And as to the girl herself, as I am going to betray her confidence, she is equally out of the question. It wouldn't do to write for an appointment, said Lamley. No, certainly not. They would wonder among themselves why I wrote, and I want to have him wholly unprepared. Call and ask to see him alone, suggested Lamley. I would rather not do that either. Leave it to me. Spare me the little carriage for today and for tomorrow. If I don't succeed today, and I'll lie in wait for him. It was barely settled when a manly form was seen to pass the windows, and heard to knock and ring. Here's Fledgeby, said Lamley. He admires you and has a high opinion of you. I'll be out. Coax him to use his influence with the Jew. His name is Rhea, of the house of Pubsby and Company, adding these words under his breath, lest he should be audible in the erect ears of Mr. Fledgeby, through two keyholes and the hall. Lamley, making signals of discretion to his servant, went softly up the stairs. "'Mr. Fledgeby,' said Mrs. Lamley, giving him a very gracious reception, "'so glad to see you. My poor dear Alfred, who is greatly worried just now about his affairs, went out rather early.' Dear Mr. Fledgeby, do sit down. Dear Mr. Fledgeby did sit down and satisfied himself, or, judging from the expression of his countenance, dissatisfied himself, that nothing new had occurred in the way of whisker-sprout since he came round the corner from the Albany. Dear Mr. Fledgeby, it was needless to mention to you that my poor dear Alfred is much worried about his affairs at present, for he has told me what a comfort you are to him in his temporary difficulties, and what a great service you have rendered him. Oh, said Mr. Fledgeby. Yes, said Mrs. Lamley. I don't know, remarked Mr. Fledgeby, trying a new part of his chair, but that Lamley might be reserved about his affairs. Not to me, said Mrs. Lamley, with deep feeling. Oh, indeed, said Fledgeby. Not to me, dear Mr. Fledgeby, I am his wife. "'Yes, I—I I always understood so,' said Mr. Fledgeby. "'And as the wife of Alfred, may I, dear Mr. Fledgeby, wholly without his authority or knowledge, as I am sure your discernment will perceive, entreat you to continue that great service, and once more use your well-earned influence with Mr. Rhea for a little more indulgence. The name I have heard Alfred mention, tossing in his dreams, is Rhea, is it not?' The name of the creditor is Rhea, said Mr. Fledgeby, with a rather uncompromising accent on his non-substantive. St. Mary Axe, Pubsby and Company. Oh, yes, exclaimed Mrs. Lamley, clasping her hands with a certain gushing wildness. Pubsby and Company. The pleading of the feminine, Mr. Fledgeby began, and there stuck so long for a word to get on with that Mrs. Lamley offered him sweetly, Art? No, said Mr. Fledgeby, gender is ever what a man is bound to listen to, and I wish it rested with myself. But this Rhea is a nasty one, Mrs. Lamley. He really is. Not if you speak to him, dear Mr. Fledgeby. 
upon my soul and body he is said fledgeby try try once more dearest mr fledgeby what is there you cannot do if you will thank you said fledgeby you're very complimentary to say so i don't mind trying him again at your request but of course i can't answer for the consequences Rhea is a tough subject and when he says he'll do a thing he'll do it exactly so cried mrs lamley and when he says to you he'll wait he'll wait she is a devilish clever woman thought fledgeby i didn't see that opening but she spies it out and cuts into it as soon as it's made in point of fact dear mr fledgeby mrs lamley went on in a very interesting manner not to affect concealment of alfred's hopes to you who are so much his friend there is a distant break in his horizon the figure of speech seemed rather mysterious to fascination fledgeby who said there is a what in his eh alfred dear mr fledgeby discussed with me this very morning before he went out some prospects he has which might entirely change the aspect of his present troubles really said fledgeby oh yes here mrs lamley brought her handkerchief into play and you know dear mr fledgeby you who study the human heart and study the world what an affliction it would be to lose position and to lose credit when ability to tide over a very short time might save all appearances oh said fledgeby then you think mrs lamley that if lamley got time he wouldn't burst up to use an expression mr fledgeby apologetically explained which is adopted in the money market indeed yes truly truly yes that makes all the difference said fledgeby i'll make a point of seeing rhea at once blessings on you dearest mr fledgeby not at all said fledgeby she gave him her hand the hand said mr fledgeby of a lovely and superior-minded female is ever the repayment of a noble action said mrs lamley extremely anxious to get rid of him it wasn't what i was going to say returned fledgeby who never would under any circumstances accept a suggested expression but you're very complimentary may i imprint a a one upon it good morning i may depend upon your promptitude dearest mr fledgeby said fledgeby looking back at the door and respectfully kissing his hand you may depend upon it in fact mr fledgeby sped on his errand of mercy through the streets at so brisk a rate that his feet might have been winged by all the good spirits that wait on generosity they might have taken up their station in his breast too for he was blithe and merry there was quite a fresh trill in his voice when arriving at the counting-house in st mary axe and finding it for the moment empty he trolled forth at the foot of the staircase now judah what are you up to there the old man appeared with his accustomed deference hallo said fledgeby falling back with a wink you mean mischief jerusalem the old man raised his eyes inquiringly yes you do said fledgeby oh you sinner oh you dodger what you're going to act upon that bill of sale at lamley's are you nothing will turn you won't it you won't be put off for another single minute won't you ordered to immediate action by the master's tone and look the old man took up his hat from the little corner where it lay you have been told that he might pull through it if you didn't go in to win wide awake have you said fledgeby and it's not your game that he should pull through it ain't it you having got security and there being enough to pay you oh you jew the old man stood irresolute and uncertain for a moment as if there might be further instructions for him in reserve do i go sir he at length asked in a low voice asks me if he is going exclaimed fledgeby asks me if he didn't know his own purpose 
asks me as if he hadn't got his hat on ready asks me as if his sharp old eye why it cuts like a knife wasn't looking at his walking-stick by the door do i go sir do you go sneered fledgeby yes you do go toddle judah End of section forty five of Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Read by Don W. Jenkins. Rancho San Diego, California. Shaggybark.blogspot.com.